Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 47, I Married the Dissolution of the Soviet Union. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Irons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Where'd who we wed? To ye doctor set sail when we set sail to ye doctor. Think I got that right? And today I'll be discussing season three, episode 12, I Married Marge, which first aired on December the 26th, 1991. Boxing Night, though entirely unrelated to Christmas, and three weeks after the last episode aired. And it's a very special moment in the history of Retrospecticus as we finally bring the curtain down on the Soviet Union. On December 25th, 1991, the Soviet flag was lowered from the Kremlin for the final time. The next day, December 26th, 1991, the very same day that I Married Marge first aired, the Council of Republics voted both itself and the Soviet Union out of existence, putting Mikhail Gorbachev out of a job and bringing an end to the Cold War. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. And there's been a fair amount of Twitter interaction over the past few weeks because BBC Radio 4 tweeted looking for podcast recommendations and listener Ed Sir recommended us. And his tweet was liked by the Radio Free Twitter account. So we've gone highbrow. See you at the ballet. Yes, I'm a little worried about that as I'm not the most uh, highbrow of people. So uh, to anyone listening who came to us via Radio 3, I'd just like to say that I have now had it explained to me in words of one syllable or less that ballet is not the bear driving the little car. What? What have I bought tickets for then? Oh, Tom, sorry. Sorry. Damn. But yes, you can expect more highbrow quality content from me from now on and less talking about euphemisms for sex acts. Although in the same breath, I'd also like to assure you that you can expect my same dynamite mix of sketchy research, ranting about the clash and slurring as if drunk as I desperately try to please all of the people all of the time. Yay. Now, also, someone else on Twitter said they liked us, which is nice. However, I like to check these things to make sure I'm not reporting the words of a neo-Nazi or something. And the person in question is clearly a massive transphobe. Now, how did we end up with a listener like that? So for the avoidance of doubt, let me reel off the following statements. Trans women are women, trans men are men, non-binary identities are valid. And if you don't like any of that, go and lose yourself in JK Rowling's Twitter account. There, rant over. I thoroughly endorse that event or product. Right, back to normal service. This aired on December the 26th, 1991. Just one day after I got a Nintendo Entertainment System with Super Mario Brothers and the Sunsoft Batman game, which is only tangentially related to the Batman universe or the first Keaton film on which it was apparently based. But it's still a really, really good, really difficult platform game. A fun Christmas for me then, pausing only to watch the much-hyped Ghosts of Oxford Street on Channel 4. And check out Tim Worthington's Looks Unfamiliar podcast for our thoughts on that televisual event. But Gareth, I hear you ask, will you please shut up? At least for long enough to tell us what the Christmas number one was that week. Well, as foreshadowed in a recent episode, it's Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. It was a double A-side with These Are The Days Of Our Lives, 
And given that the latter was a more contemporary offering, that's the one I'm putting on the playlist, as it's simply more 90s. Written largely by Roger Taylor, the video was filmed in black and white because Freddie Mercury was visibly dying by that point. And Brian May was digitally inserted into it at a later date because he was unavailable for the filming. These Are the Days was originally released on September the 5th, 1991, which was Freddie Mercury's 45th birthday. That single had been and gone, and another single from the Innuendo album had been released in the meantime, The Show Must Go On, which came out on October 14th, 1991, and had also been and gone, and then re-entered the charts upon Mercury's death. So then this double A-side comes out on December 9th, 1991, and goes to number one, largely based on the nostalgia for Bohemian Rhapsody. And I got my timings a bit mixed up because I remember all this happening. But then there was also the Mike Myers and Dana Carvey film Wayne's World, which heavily featured Bohemian Rhapsody in its opening minutes. But that wasn't released until February 1992. It was a very bow rap heavy few months to be alive. I can tell you that between the show must go on. And these are the days of our lives. Queen left themselves a great little ending to their career. So, of course, they would go on to cash in on the 1995 Christmas market with an odds and ends album called Made in Heaven, which features Mercury's last vocal performances and a few other songs they had knocking about. They released six singles from that album and continue to be active in the live arena to this day, touring first with Bad Company frontman Paul Rogers and then with American Idol runner up Adam Lambert. There is something to be said for knowing when to let it go as original bass player John Deacon did way back in 1997. Returning to the episode, it had a US viewership of 11.9 on the Nielsen, which is 11 million viewing households, and it was the highest rated Fox show that week, 27th overall for all networks. The production number was 8F10, and the credited writer is one Jeff Martin, as we discussed in episode 19, Dead Webpage Society. The chalkboard gag is, I will not torment the emotionally frail. And the couch gag, I've just described it as the family flip in and strike a pose. But what actually happens? Well, the Simpsons are going to use Barnacle Bill's home pregnancy test. The only pregnancy testing kit that comes with a free corncob pipe. If the water turns blue, a baby for you. If purple ye see, no baby thar be. Unfortunately, ye test failed. So to a doctor, March sets sail, leaving Homer with the kids to entertain and field uncomfortable questions from. What better distraction than another flashback? Back we go to the candidacy of John Anderson and the rise of Supertramp. Yes, it's 1980. And Homer has a hilariously pointless job, turning the blades on the windmill hole at a crazy golf course. No sooner do we see that tiny bit of setup than it is revealed that Bart and Lisa have stopped listening and are playing croquet, of all things. And after they disparage TV, TV, he begins his tale anew with the captive audience that is Maggie. Marge and Homer both still live in their family homes, and we see 1980 Patty, Selma and Jacqueline before Marge leaves for her date to see The Empire Strikes Back, whose pivotal revelation... Homer spoils for a queue full of later watchers. Then they go for a drive. I think I mentioned how cool Homer's car was last time with its spoiler chain link steering wheel and new Disco Sucks bumper sticker. They then have a Tinder sing-along before drinking some champagne in the castle at the golf course. Soon after, Homer is at Barney's flat watching Charlie's Angels and eating cookie dough when Marge calls from her job as a roller skating waitress at Burgers Burgers 
The first burger being spelled as the surname of the Austrian 80s and 90s Formula One great Gerhard Burger, in a visual joke that raises a slight chuckle on first view, but less so as time goes on, like the B-sharps, in fact, and one that it probably wasn't worth me wasting this much time explaining verbally. <laughs> anyway, she asks for a ride to the doctors. So, they've ruined their lives. Marge is pregnant, as a Biafrode Hibbert explains. Cut to another classic Abraham Simpson demotivational talk, which at least motivates Homer to propose to Marge, which he accidentally does by proxy whilst half-mooning in the front seat of his car. She says yes, and we're off to the races, as it would be a bit of a tease to have an episode with this title that didn't involve the marrying of Marge. We quickly cut to Homer buying an engagement ring on credit, and they discuss possible names for the baby. But Homer cuts most off with a rhyming insult that he worries would become a schoolyard refrain. Tom, I'll make this easier than usual. I'll give you the name. You tell me the insult. Oh, okay. okay. So first up we have Larry. Larry Farry? Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm guessing it was one. meant to be fairy, that one. Um, that's what I've always thought. Uh, I don't think that would be acceptable as an insult these days. So perhaps we'll just assume it was Farry. Um, we then have Louis. Screwy. Yep. Bob. Slob? Yep. Luke. <laughs> Puke. And perhaps my favourite, Marcus. Mucus. There we go, yes. Five for five, Tom. Well done. Um, the name Bart passes the test when Homer can't seem to remember his alphabet past E, getting only through art, cart, dart, and e-art. On four fingers as well, which is great. <laughs> Homer and Marge's wedding is one of many events in The Simpsons that is canonically flexible, but this version of it contains many details that have endured. So in this version, they drive alone to Shotgun Pete's 24-hour wedding chapel, just across the state line outside of the state that Springfield is in, with a Casio rendition of Here Comes the Bride and a lot of stains on the ceiling. After a less than five minute ceremony, the State Gaming Commission declares the man and wife with a surprise red eyed photo and $10 worth of chips. Sadly, not potato ones. Then it's back to sleep in Marge's family's living room. Money is tight, so Homer applies at the new nuclear power plant, but has the misfortune to be in a catchment group with two frat brothers of Smithers. But make no mistake, from what we see, he also appears to have been the least competent candidate, fraternity system aside. So we get a Homer Jobs montage, maker of crappy vacation ruining candles in Old Springfield Town, each of which has an E after it, Slashco Knives traveling salesman who needs to learn to hand them over handle first, and the pitiless pup attack dog school's test victim, followed by a visit to a pitch for a trapezoid scheme, not, I'm at pains to point out, one of those shady pyramid schemes. With no luck holding down any of these positions, the Repo Depot comes a-knocking for the baby gear and Marge's ring. And Homer leaves, vowing to send Marge all his money and to return when he is a man, the kind of responsible head of a household that won't let his children eat a can of frosting for lunch. He's bad at laying low, though, as Patty and Selma discover him working at the Gulp and Blow when their taco is found to be full of hair. Patty is against telling Marge where he is, but Selma sees how sad she is and spills the beans, whilst Homer dreams of a job in the plant and donuts all the colours of the rainbow. Marge confronts Homer and asks him to come home, reconfirming their marriage in onion ring form and giving him the gumption to march into the plant and demand a job, aggressively talking up his qualities as a meek bootlicker. 
And when Bart is born later that day, he sees a man with a good job, Dr. Hibbert. But also Homer, now a nuclear plant worker. In the present day, Homer tells the kids he's fine with having another child, then celebrates wildly when Marge returns to reveal she's not pregnant after all. And that's it. I think it's a really good one. I think it suffers slightly from not being And Maggie Makes Three or Lisa Sachs, which are the next two Golden Age flashback episodes. But it's got it's got everything for me. It's it's on the money. Mm-hmm. One thing I find really odd about this episode is that it's broadcast on December 26th. And they must have known roughly when the air date was going to be. But it's got nothing to do with Christmas whatsoever. That seems almost criminal that you could have an episode of The Simpsons broadcast the day after Christmas and it not be about Christmas. That's weird. Mm. For a long, long time, they didn't have any any specifically Christmas episodes. Marge Be Not Proud is probably the best episode that went out around Christmas that is even slightly Christmas related. That being the one where uh, Bart steals Bonestorm from the department store and then has to mm-hmm. go for his uh, family Christmas photo. But yeah, up, and, up until that, obviously after Simpsons roasting on an open fire, there's really not that much Christmas in The Simpsons. Which is just just very odd when you think about it. Mm-hmm. They've they've sort of in recent years they've they've acknowledged it a lot more uh, and had a few specials. But yeah, you, you are quite right. What, why this is the Boxing Day episode? Answers on a postcard. The character debut segment is on hiatus for retooling, so it's straight to did you know? But don't worry, I've got a fair few. So this contains one of the six primetime Emmy award-winning performances from The Simpsons that year. In this case, it was Julie Kavner for Marge. Homer wears an I Shot JR t-shirt. Now, I'm going to explain this just in case no one's heard of it, because this was a long time ago. I mean, we're talking 1980, this is set. So just just for clarity, in the last episode of season three of the US soap Dallas, which was hugely popular at the time and over here as well, uh, divisive patriarch JR Ewing, played by Larry Hagman, was shot, leaving the show on a cliffhanger. The timing fits as that episode was broadcast in March 1980, with the series not returning and revealing that JR had survived until November 1980, and actually keeping fans waiting until the fourth episode of season four, the appropriately titled Who Done It, to reveal the perpetrator. It probably goes without saying again, but this then unique televisual event was the inspiration for parts one and two of Who Shot Mr. Burns, comprising the final episode of Simpsons season six and the first of season seven and leaving their fans waiting four months for a big reveal. Scene setting music in this episode includes Supertramp's The Logical Song, the crowning glory of their seminal Breakfast in America album. That one always strikes a chord with me because that album was one of my dad's favourites when my mum was pregnant. And it was one of the very few cassette tapes they had to listen to just before I was born. And I was born in 1980. So there we go. It's this is in exactly the right place for me. There's also You Light Up My Life from 1977 and sung by Debbie Boone, daughter of Pat Boone whose creepy qualities will be noted in the Flanders household in Season 7, Episode 3, Home Sweet, Home Diddly, Dum Doodly. (laughs) Is it a bit sad that that is my only reference of Pat Boone in my head? I have no idea who he is apart from that. Same as. I've always assumed he was a singer, but I I have no proof of that whatsoever. I I just think he's creepy because The Simpsons told me. And also 9 to 5 by Dolly Parton. Taken from the film of the same name, released November 1980. Dolly will eventually guest in The Simpsons in Season 10, Episode 12, Sunday Cruddy Sunday. 
The kids argue about whether the new child will be called Ariel or Cool Modi. Both of these were contemporary references in 1991. Ariel is the titular Little Mermaid from the Disney film of the same name, which was released in 1989. And Mr. Modi was a popular hip hop artist of the time who won a Grammy Award that year, but was about to start his slide out of the Zeke Geist at this stage. He also feuded with LL Cool J, which may rank as one of hip hop's least violent feuds. And finally this week in Boy, I hope someone got fired for that If Homer was hired at the power plant On the day that Bart was born And given that his canon birthday at the time Was April 1st, 1981 As noted in the Simpsons Uncensored Family album Then why is Mr. Burns playing Ms. Pac-Man Which was released in the US in early 1982 I would have accepted him playing Crazy Otto the game created with a mod kit for the original Pac-Man coin-up that was developed by General Computer Corporation. That game became Ms. Pac-Man after Midway decided not to sue them and actually buy the improvements, which included four different mazes and semi-random ghost movements. But I guess I'll just have to settle for giving out about this on a podcast nearly 29 years after the episode was released, like any other jobless and dangerously obsessed middle-aged person of my generation. That's healthy, <laughs> Right? Right? Lads, ah, never mind. Tom, it's time for memeable moments. Yes. Okay. So, great episode, and there's some and there's some real classic memeable stuff here. Stuff that appears a lot. So, first one I've gone for is Homer walking out of the cinema. And spoiler alert for The Empire Strikes Back here, right? If you haven't seen a forty-year-old film whose main surprise is the whole premise for the prequel trilogy, which which themselves came out about 20 years ago. Okay, so at the end of Empire Strikes Back, it's revealed that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. And Homer walks out of the cinema saying this. And of course, a bunch of people go, oh, way to ruin the movie for me. Uh, You know, spoiler alert. Back before spoilers were a real thing. So yeah, that's very memeable. If ever someone spoils something for them, you just show that picture of Homer walking past the crowd in 1980. So yeah, there's that one. There's the pamphlet, which Dr. Hibbert gives Marge when he's telling her that she's pregnant. The pamphlet entitled, So You've Ruined Your Life. That's usually wheeled out whenever someone uh, does something very regrettable, like getting a, I don't know, getting a tattoo on their face or something. And finally, there's... What a crappy candle. Then cutting to you've ruined our vacation. That is wheeled out a lot whenever someone posts a terrible meme. Someone will reply with what a crappy post. You've ruined our message board. (laughs) Message message board. How old am I? Anyway, there we are. That's memeable moments. Excellent. I think I see four or five of that last one per day at the minute, as I've now chosen to get all of my news in Simpsons meme form. It softens the blow. It really does. And now, after all this time, it's time for the end of the Soviet Union. I must admit I will shed a tear for our old friends Andropov and Chenenko. But Tom, let's do it. Okay. So this is part two of the story of the end of the Soviet Union. In the last episode, we looked at the signing of the Bella Vesa Accords. That was when the leaders of Russia, Ukraine and Belarus got together to sign accords that signalled that they were going to end the Soviet Union and replace it with the Commonwealth of Independent States. 
Those Accords were signed on December 8th, 1991, and this is the story of what happened next. So at this point in history, the Soviet Union was on the verge of collapse. The Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev had tried to save it by drawing up a new Union treaty, but this was interrupted by the August coup. The coup was led by communist hardliners who wanted to reverse Gorbachev's reforms, but it had the opposite effect, causing various republics, including the Baltic states, to declare their independence. Then on December 1st, Ukraine held its reference on independence, which passed with a thumping 92%. Just a week later, the Belobesa Accords were signed by the leaders of Russia, Ukraine and Belarus, who declared that the Soviet Union no longer existed and it would be succeeded by the CIS. Four days later, on December 12th, Boris Yeltsin paralysed what little authority the USSR had left. In adopting the Belobesa Accords, Yeltsin withdrew all of the Russian deputies from the Supreme Soviet of the USSR. Without the Russians, the Supreme Soviet was totally useless, as Russia was by far the largest and most powerful state of the USSR. By this point, the lines of when the USSR existed and when it didn't are kind of blurred. So Russia withdrawing its deputies from the Supreme Soviet was technically illegal, as no member of the Union had the right to do that under Soviet law. However, no one, especially not Gorbachev, had the power to stop them. Russia claimed that the USSR wasn't in existence at this point anyway, so how could they withdraw their deputies from a country that didn't exist? So, you know, it's it's really all up in the air. So anyway, with the Belavesa Accords in place, Yeltsin wanted to invite the rest of the remaining republics to join the CIS. This took place on December 21st, 1991, in the city of Alma-Ata in Kazakhstan. So again, not in Russia. And Alma-Ata is an interesting place. Up until 1921, it was called Vernyi. It was given that name by Imperial Russia after a nearby fort. When the Soviets took control, they gave it the name Alma-Ata, one of its much older names. They didn't want it to have an imperial name, you see. In 1978, it played host to the International Conference on Primary Health Care, where the Alma-Ata Declaration was made, calling on all governments to provide health care for everyone, an important step in the history of public health. So anyway, the leaders of Armenia, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Moldova, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan agreed to join Russia, Ukraine and Belarus in the endeavour of the Commonwealth of Independent States. The former Soviet republics of Latvia, Estonia and Lithuania had just won their independence and had no intention of joining. The only other former Soviet state that was missing was Georgia, which was in the grip of civil war. See episode 31, Brush with Georgia for more on that. This paved the way for all of the Soviet republics to become completely independent. With the signing of the Alma-Ata protocols, the dissolution of the Soviet Union was almost complete. Poor old Mikhail Gorbachev was left completely out in the cold. Amazingly, for someone who was arguably the second most powerful man on the planet for about five years, he accepted his fate with remarkably good grace. He met with Yeltsin around a week before the USSR officially ceased to be, and worked out how things would proceed in a post-USSR world, including how the nuclear arsenal would be managed. Now, one thing that's important to keep in mind is just how much Gorbachev and Yeltsin hated each other. Gorbachev originally brought Yeltsin to Moscow as a political ally who would speak out against the old communist system. However, in 1987, Yeltsin thought Gorbachev's reforms were too slow and spoke out against him personally before resigning from the Politburo. Although Gorbachev initially wanted him to reconsider, when he heard a version of Yeltsin's speech, Gorbachev was furious and he fired Yeltsin. Apparently Yeltsin tried to kill himself by stabbing himself in the chest. 
Gorbachev ordered him out of hospital to attend a show trial confirming his dismissal. Not surprisingly, Yeltsin really didn't like Gorbachev after that. At Yeltsin's meeting with Gorbachev to formalise the handover of power, they agreed that after Gorbachev resigned, they would meet and Gorbachev would hand over the, and I apologise for my mangled pronunciation of this word, the Chemodanchich, the briefcase that contained the nuclear launch codes. Ah, that must be Russia's version of the football, as they call it in America. Mm, yes, absolutely. So in exchange for an orderly transfer, Gorbachev and his family would be allowed to stay in their presidential residence for a few days to get their affairs in order. And the red banner, the flag of the Soviet Union, would fly over the Kremlin until New Year's Eve. And on December 25th, the day that many people consider to be the final day of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev went into an almost deserted Kremlin to sign a decree saying that he was giving up the presidency of the Soviet Union. However, before he did that, he took a phone call from his wife, Razor, who told him that Yeltsin's men had arrived at their residence and started to clear it out, dumping furniture on the driveway. After he'd calmed down from that, he called President Bush and wished him a Merry Christmas, who told him to watch out for Yeltsin, who he said would zigzag. Then he got ready to sign his resignation letter. The occasion was made even more bizarre by the fact that Western reporters outnumbered Russian ones. Gorbachev went to sign his resignation with a Russian felt pen. When that didn't work, he borrowed a Mont Blanc ballpoint from a chap called Tom Johnson, who at the time was the president of CNN. So already the scene is full of accidental symbolism. (laughs) Mont Blanc's a German company. So you've got, you know, a German pen being used to sign the end of the USSR. Given over by an American journalist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So after resigning, Gorbachev took the opportunity to address the union on television for the final time. I've read a translation of it, and I think it's fair to say that it's balanced, fair, conciliatory, and maybe even hopeful. He starts off by announcing his resignation as Soviet president and stating that the post no longer exists. You can do your own crazy Vaclav joke there. He, He regretted the slow pace of reform, but celebrated the end of the Cold War and the removal of the threat of nuclear war. He ends with the following. I am very much concerned as I am leaving this post. However, I also have feelings of hope and faith in you, your wisdom and force of spirit. We are heirs of the great civilization, and it now depends on all and everyone whether or not this civilization will make a comeback to a new and decent living today. I would like, from the bottom of my heart, to thank everyone who has stood by me throughout these years, working for the righteous and good cause. Of course, there were mistakes made that could have been avoided. And many of the things that we did could have been done better. But I'm positive that sooner or later, someday our common effort will bear fruit and our nations will live in a prosperous, democratic society. I wish everyone all the best. Which is very nice, isn't it? All the best. What a a nice fellow he seems. He Um, does. He does. It's like all the best, Governor. Especially when you've spent, you know, the first 10 years of your life, in my case, being told by, by the media, this is the enemy. This is this is the person that's trying to kill you and your way of life. Uh, no, just just seemed seemed a very reasonable chap on the way out, if I remember rightly. Yeah, absolutely. A- absolutely killed spitting image, though. I mean, once they couldn't <laughs> use that puppet anymore, what was the point? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. So Yeltsin arrived at the Kremlin that evening and watched Gorbachev's speech on television in a separate office which asked me is a really weird thing to do. And he became absolutely livid while he was watching it, as he thought that Gorbachev had criticised his ideas for the CIS and failed to give him credit for stopping the August coup. 
he was so angry that he turned it off halfway through. And he even refused to meet Gorbachev afterwards for the handover. So there Gorbachev was, having just resigned from his former position of the second most powerful man on the planet, holding a briefcase full of n- nuclear launch codes, going, what do I do now? Like, you know, like, like John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. Just looking around, going, And I find all of that really weird because Yeltsin did himself out of a really good photo op. Can you imagine how it could have been? So you have the president of a newly independent Russia marching confidently up to his now powerless predecessor, shaking his hand and taking the briefcase from him before triumphantly lifting it up in the air for the world's media to see. That should have been a photo that ended up in all the history books. Instead, thanks to Yeltsin's impertinence, it didn't happen. So the briefcase was eventually given to him by Marshal Yevgeny Shapushnikov, who was there to supervise. What did happen, though, was Yeltsin continued to go back on his deal with Gorbachev. Instead of flying until New Year's, the Red Banner came down from the Kremlin at 7.32pm, which is pretty much immediately after Gorbachev had finished his speech. It was replaced with the Russian Tricolor, which, if you ask me, is a pretty poor design, but that's another story. Interestingly enough, the Red Banner didn't come down immediately elsewhere in the Soviet Union. In St. Petersburg, it continued to fly from the Communist Party building. Vladimir Putin, no less, who at the time was head of the city's Committee for External Relations of the Mayor's Office, just can't give up those really long titles, he ordered it to be taken down. After it was taken down, a new one was unfurled. This was also removed before once again being replaced. Which was, you know... <laughs> the last act of trolling of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, it really was. <laughs> so so this cycle happened several times before Putin lost patience and ordered that the flagpole be cut down with a blowtorch. Oh, that, that's brilliant. That is just, that is great. Yeah. Now, now, that is something I wish I could have seen. That sounds amazing. So one thing that's odd to note about this whole affair is how little ceremony there was in Moscow. So most Muscovites considered the Soviet Union dead anyway, so there wasn't really that much to mark. Also, people didn't know that December the 25th was going to be the last time the Red Banner was flown over the Kremlin. So there wasn't really even an event to consider because, you know, they hadn't put out the plans. So, and, you know, as far as they, can, they were concerned, it was just another normal day. So the next day, December 26th, the day I married Marge first aired, the Council of Republics of the Supreme Soviet of the USSR met for the final time. They had one simple piece of business to attend to. They wrote and signed into law Declaration 142H, the Declaration of the Commonwealth of Independent States. For a piece of Soviet law, this declaration was very short, just three paragraphs. In it, they declared that as the CIS had been brought into existence, then the USSR ceased to be. The USSR left the world with these parting words. The Council of Republics of the Supreme Soviet of the USSR calls on the highest representative bodies of state power and the heads of state members of the Commonwealth to take all measures in their power to ensure the rights and freedoms of citizens, regardless of their nationality, in accordance with the Declaration of Human Rights and Freedoms, peaceful coexistence of the peoples of the Commonwealth and their democratic development statehood, good neighbourly relations and cooperation with states and peoples of the world community, unswerving fulfillment of international obligations arising from treaties and agreements of the USSR. So there you go. That's nice of them to mention human rights and democracy and everything. But that was it for the USSR. 
power was immediately transferred to the constituent republics, with the CIS not really wielding any power. Following the dissolution of the USSR, Boris Yeltsin became the undisputed leader of Russia. But what about Gorbachev? Well, he went on to have an interesting career as a public speaker, charging large fees for his talks. He toured the world, raising money for his International Foundation for Socio-Economic and Political Studies. Remember, he's a true communist, they love long names, or Gorbachev Foundation for short. He was warmly received around the world, visiting former US President Ronald Reagan and donning a cowboy outfit. He also toured Japan, where he was given numerous honorary titles, and he visited Germany, where he got a warm welcome thanks to his role in German reunification. In his attempts to raise money for his foundation, he ended up doing some rather odd things, including appearing in a Pizza Hut commercial in 1997. In case you haven't seen Mikhail Gorbachev's Pizza Hut advert, allow me to briefly describe it. It starts off in Moscow, where we're shown a short montage of all the famous sites. Gorbachev goes into Pizza Hut with his granddaughter. A family on the next table argue about him amongst themselves. The patriarch of the family says things like, because of him, we have chaos. And the son counters with, because of him, we have hope. Eventually, the matriarch pipes up with, because of him, we have Pizza Hut. And they all start (laughs) chanting, hail Gorbachev, hail Gorbachev. I mean, it's a really weird one, but he was old and he needed the money. Of course, the end of the USSR spelled the end of the Cold War. Since the end of the Second World War, the two superpowers of the USA and the USSR had dominated the world with their competing ideologies of capitalism and communism. Once both sides had nuclear capabilities, the threat of an annihilatory global war seemed a very real possibility. With the USSR gone, the USA had, well, won. And suddenly the world was a very different place. The hammer and sickle disappeared from the map and all of the world's flags. George H.W. Bush himself made a televised address to the USA on December 25th, 1991, when everyone wouldn't have been watching because it was Christmas Day. In it, after wishing everyone a happy Christmas, he celebrated the fall of communism, thanked Gorbachev, and welcomed the newly independent members of the CIS to the world. Here's a little snippet. I don't know if I can do an impression of George Bush Barr. Have you seen my George Bush impression? <laughs> this is uh, this is a day of great hope for all Americans. Our enemies have become our partners, committed to building democratic and civil societies. They ask for our support and we will give it to them. We will do it because as Americans, we can do no less. That's all you get of my terrible George Bush impression. <laughs> And, and you had the nerve to criticise my Ringo Starr during Brush of Greatness. <laughs> Absolutely. So, funnily enough, the end of the Cold War under the watch of George H.W. Bush did nothing for his presidency. As still under the shadow of recession, he lost the 1992 presidential election to Bill Clinton. And the breakup of the USSR caused a fair amount of confusion, certainly of the world of sport. So the USSR had qualified for the 1992 European Championships in Sweden and they competed under the banner of the CIS, which is one of the worst flags I've ever seen. It was just a white banner with CIS written on it in blue letters. Awful. The CIS failed to get out of the group stage after suffering a 3-0 defeat to Scotland. (laughs) Oh dear. And you can't get much more embarrassing than that. At the Barcelona Olympics, whose theme was sung by Freddie Mercury no less, Athletes from the former USSR competed under the rather odd title of simply Unified Team under the Olympic flag. 
Despite this, they topped the medal table, winning 45 golds to the USA's 37. Presumably, there was a rigged Krusty Burger giveaway that year. Incidentally, the recently unified Germany finished third with 33. So to finish off, let's have a quick chat about legacy. Was the USSR a good thing or a bad thing? Well, clearly, a lot of very bad things happened in the USSR, notably under the iron fist of Joseph Stalin. These included the use of the Gulag system, which was founded by Lenin, famines that killed millions, and the Great Terror in which hundreds of thousands of people were murdered. Then following World War II, in which approximately 26 million Soviet citizens died, there came the Cold War and the nuclear arms race, which I mentioned earlier. One thing about the Cold War, which I haven't really touched on, is the space race. And this is where I think the Soviet Union's legacy is most positive. The space race was a battle for prestige between the ideologies of capitalism and communism. In terms of the race, the USSR did almost everything first. They launched Sputnik 1, the world's first artificial satellite. Yuri Gagarin became the first man in space. And Valentina Tereshkova became the first woman in space. Of course, they lost out to the USA for the big prize, which was to be the first to put a man on the moon. But without the USSR to race against, there is no way in hell that the USA would have put a man on the surface of the moon on July 20th, 1969. Then again, the USA also wouldn't have been able to do it if they didn't have Nazi rocket scientist Werner von Braun working for them either. But that's another story. Can I just check? Is that is that Braun with a W? Yes. Yes, that is the von Braun who is based on the wrestler from an earlier Simpsons episode excellent yes anyway when i try and judge the ussr i ask the question would i like to have lived there and my answer is always no in the western world in 2020 we take a lot of things for granted we'd like being able to openly criticize the government we'd like being able to go on foreign holidays well not so much at the moment obviously we'd like being able to access media from around the world and we like having access to the latest technologies. All of those things were not freely available in the Soviet Union, certainly not until the advent of Gorbachev's reforms anyway. So on balance, the USSR was a bad thing, swish eyebrows. It certainly shouldn't be romanticised, and it most definitely should not be missed, in my opinion. Just before I go, I want to mark the fact that this very show has reached a particular milestone. Our very first episode went out on April 28th, 2018. So, you know, over two years ago. I'm not including the pilot. The world already feels like a very different place. The history bit of that episode was about the death of Nikolai Ceausescu of Romania, part of one of the revolutions of 1989 that freed Eastern Europe from communist dictatorships. And we're done with that part of history now. We're moving on to a brave new post-Cold War world an entirely new chapter of history. So I just wanted to say thanks. Thanks to all my sources, thanks to the listeners, and special thanks to Gareth for putting up with all my fortnightly ramblings. Cheers. Don't forget you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. Email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. And to play us out, imagine the red banner being slowly lowered from the Kremlin as we play the national anthem of the Soviet Union for the last time. Bye, everyone. Bye.